Welcome to Marrow Masters Season 5, sponsored by the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, CGEN, Omeros Corporation, and the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. The National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, established in 1992, strives to help patients, caregivers, and their families cope with the psychosocial challenges of transplant from diagnosis through survivorship. Here's your host, Executive Director of the NBMT Link, Peggy Burkhardt. Welcome, everyone. This Season 5 series will focus on survivorship. Whether you're five minutes into your survivorship or 25 years plus, we have it all. We have perspectives that will speak to you, inspire you, and help you at every turn. When patients enter survivorship, it is truly a gift, but it also can be overwhelming and emotionally draining. So this season, we're going to focus on helping survivors and their caregivers better understand the despair, mental challenges, work career issues, GVHD, and the role it plays in survivorship, giving back, not giving up, finding your herd, and so much more. So grab a few minutes, grab some coffee, settle in, and get ready to be enlightened and educated as you make a few new friends who will share their grit, intense honesty, and determination to not only get through this, but to thrive and live their best life. Today, we welcome survivor Pete Thomason. Hi, Peggy. Hi, Pete. Thanks for being with us today. I just know that your story will resonate with so many. Can you give us some background and tell us more about being diagnosed with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL, about six years ago, having your stem cell transplant, and what life has been since then? Thanks for having me on today. I appreciate it. I was 61 and had always been in good health, mentally and physically. So when I got diagnosed with CLL, it was, it was like an earthquake with a whole bunch of aftershocks. There was no cancer in my family. And one day I felt fine and I was able to work. And the next day I couldn't even get out of bed. So when we got to the ER that night, my white blood cell count was 35,000. And then over the next few months, we found out I was stage four and had two mutations. So my hematologist said that my prognosis was terminal unless I could have a transplant. So chemo began almost immediately along with the process of applying for a transplant. And to be frank, we were just absolutely dazed and confused by all of it. There was no guarantee that chemo would work or that I would even qualify for a transplant. So I did what made the most sense to me, which was just to get my affairs in order and prepare for the worst. Wow, Pete. I bet you were dazed and confused. I'm so glad to know that you did, in fact, get the transplant. So let's talk about what helped you as you sorted through it all. I recall you telling me that you started to see a therapist at the oncology center almost immediately after chemo started. Did that help? And what was that like for you? In hindsight, and I wrote a story about this because I really wanted to get it down and share it with other people because I thought it was so important, but it was helpful to some degree. But my partner and I had only been together for a few years, and she was as blown away by the whole thing as I was. So until then, our life was looking really good. Uh, we both made another start after the end of long marriages, and we were making plans for the future. In our counseling session, we talked about the anxiety and fears 
of the unknown that we had. Um, it was the kind of counseling where that I'd had previously in other situations where the therapist asks questions and then wants you to talk through them to find the answers. So they didn't say much other than that. Okay. So looking back where you are now, almost six years later, what kinds of things do you wish you'd heard them talk about? I really wish we'd gotten a lot more guidance when you're in that state of mind where your whole world has just been turned upside down. Uh, you feel like you're in a dark forest at night without a clearly lit path. So it was like we were trying to hold each other's hands and not get completely lost. So we needed some guideposts or signs, even something, even if they had said something like, look, pretty soon you're going to start experiencing chemo brain and it'll scramble your thinking and your emotions. Or they could have said something like, pretty soon you're going to start experiencing different stages of grief, or this is going to be really hard on your relationship. So in hindsight, I feel like we need to be much better prepared for the psychological and emotional trauma because it was just going to get worse. We hear that so often from patients, and I'm so glad we're talking about this, Pete. Can you now elaborate a little bit on the stages of grief? Yeah, the whole cancer and transplant thing, you know, it's a major loss of normal life as we know it. And all the stages of loss are there, you know, of grief or there, of denial and anger, negotiating depression and acceptance. But, you know, they don't always come in that order. And I felt all of them many times, and I still do. And it's because the pain of loss never really goes away. We need to know what to expect and how to deal with it without getting drowned by it. Let's talk about some examples of the pain of loss that never goes away. Well, the way I experience it, and I've heard other people say the same thing, is it becomes more distant over time, not as close as when you first experience it. But there's so many different things that can trigger it, like, you know, sensory things. Those are the things that are linked to our memories. So a smell or a sound. Uh, there were <laughs> There were some songs that I heard. In the early days post-transplant, when I, I really felt like I was losing my mind. And if I hear one of those songs now, I get, I, I get flashbacks that make me sick to my stomach. Well, that is understandable and very interesting. I know what you mean about that, Pete. In fact, you say in your story that it was hard on your relationship with your partner. May I ask what happened? Yeah. Um, about a year after my transplant, I was still on immunosuppressants like most of us are. And she was urging me to go out and do more and to, you know, try to find that new normal we all talk about, but it was too much and it was too fast. And I was really still very vulnerable. I was tutoring some kids and being around kids, you know, I, I got the flu and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I, I was tutoring one day and I just started to feel bad. I came home. Uh, I went right to bed and I just felt horrible. And that turned into pneumonia and then sepsis. And then acute depression followed that. And 
between all those things, I was back in the hospital for about three weeks. So by by then, um, by then, and it's still very hard to talk about. But then I, uh, it had all gotten to be too much for her. Um, I think it was more than she felt like she had signed up for. Sure. And I had actually gone back into the emergency room because of the acute depression. And um, she helped me get signed in and never came back. And I never saw her again. So, you know, I think some better counseling might have helped us to avoid something that was so dramatic and traumatic at the end. I was... I was absolutely devastated. And since she was also my caregiver, I had to then move closer to my kids to get help and support. And that's where I am now. Well, thank you, P, for sharing what is a very personal perspective that I'm sure is going to resonate with people. Okay. So aside from talk therapy at the Cancer Center, let's talk about art therapy. I understand you have a passion for this, and I'm so excited to learn more about what this is like. Well, my introduction to it was through my daughter. Uh, my daughter, Mary, is an art therapist and introduced me to it when she came to visit me in the hospital when I was there for my transplant. You know, there's a lot of different forms it can take. You don't have to be an artist to do it. When she came to visit me in the hospital, we worked with pastels on paper just as a way of helping me to express how I was, how I was feeling right then. But since then, I've also used writing and cooking and landscaping and photography and designing and building things, and they've all been really therapeutic. These are all things that I've done in my life and I have a passion for, but I've realized how therapeutic they are for me now. So it can help people in a lot of different ways. She spent several months on the Mexican side of the border a couple of years ago and was working with refugees, helping them to cope with the trauma of their journeys from Central America, especially. And she found that for many of the women, uh, sewing with some of their traditional fabrics and motifs and things like that was very therapeutic for them. And I think for most people who try art therapy, there's this physical, hands-on, sensory experience of it, and it works especially well when your thinking isn't very clear as a result of chemo and transplant, but it's not just giving you something to do to keep your hands busy. It's really, it's almost hard to describe. It has a calming effect. It allows you to express things in ways that maybe you're not used to doing. So Pete, we do a lot with mindfulness. In fact, we just had a, a wonderful program on mindfulness that was just one of the best programs we've ever done, which was incredible to hear from patients. And obviously, more of this type of meditation, mindfulness needs to be practiced. So would you want to talk about that for a minute, how that worked for you? Yeah, I listened to that program yesterday. It was really good. For me, it's kind of been an outgrowth of a meditation practice that I've tried to do for many years, but it's gotten better, especially with some of the really excellent guidance that's out there now. For me, it's pretty simple. And as I said, there's a lot of good guidance available. Anyone can do it. I use this mindfulness approach to meditation 
And what that means in practice for me is just finding a comfortable, quiet place, calming my mind and emotions by paying attention to my breathing, my body, and even 10 or 15 minutes at a time can make a big difference. I try to do it a little bit longer, or you can do it several times a day. And especially if you're feeling bad or really stressed out. <laughs> I remember when I was going to the uh, BMT clinic after transplant and the nurse would always say, okay, I'm going to take your blood pressure, go to your happy place. <laughs> so <laughs> It kind of stuck with me. So what I'll do is I'll try to go to my happy place, which I grew up near the ocean. So it's a sandy cove on an island in the Caribbean, and the waves are moving gently in and out. And I imagine one coming into the shore as I breathe in on a count of four or five. And then as it recedes, I breathe out for a count of five or six. So the visual helps me a lot. And then if there are thoughts that start to come into my mind and want to stay there, I just imagine releasing them back into the ocean with my breath. And then sometimes I'll envision that as like a message in a bottle going out into the ocean. Well, I feel more relaxed already because I was practicing that while you were saying it. <laughs> so thank you for that. Any, uh, yeah. <laughs> any other practical suggestions regarding meditation? I think this is a good one. And uh, my favorite teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, a Vietnamese uh, Zen monk, he says it like this. He says, quote, when you sit and watch TV, you're not making any effort. And that's why you can sit there for a long time. So when you sit in meditation, if you struggle, you won't be able to sit for very long. Just imitate the way you're sitting in your living room with the TV. Effortlessness is the key to success. Don't fight. Don't try hard. Just allow yourself to sit there. So this relaxing way of sitting is also restful, and it allows your body and your mind to rest. That's the way he puts it. I like that. Well, that sounds really good to me. <laughs> so Pete, let's talk about the idea of finding a new normal and how that affected you. Yeah. So as you know, that story I wrote was called Some Kind of Normal. And that is what kind of got you and me talking about this. You know, the way I think about it is what we go through with cancer and transplant, like I said at the beginning, is like a natural disaster. So, so when the damage has been done, almost everything is different. Some things are completely destroyed. For example, we all have these social systems that we live in for work, for school, for family, our neighborhoods, our friends, you know. And then there's this infrastructure that we all have for communication and energy and shelter and safety, all those fundamental Maslow hierarchy of needs. And, you know, these things give organization and predictability to our lives. So if something completely disrupts them, our ability to function the way we're used to doing things is really challenged. So there's no way of predicting how long it'll take. It's different for everyone. And at the end of the day, all you can do is take care of yourself, rebuild, and find equifinality. Okay, so you can probably guess my next question. What exactly do you mean by equifinality? So equifinality, Peggy, is the idea that a goal, like a new normal, can be reached in a lot of different ways because there are so many different personal factors at work. And some of them we have no control over. Many of them we don't, but there are some that we do. 
So after a crisis interrupts the way things were, when the dust settles, there's just a whole new set of circumstances and patterns. It's just like after Hurricane Katrina. So adjusting to them is finding some kind of normal, and that's how I think about it. Okay, so really almost everything is different. Let's talk about that. What I've come to realize is that emotionally, psychologically, financially, socially, spiritually, almost everything is upset by a crisis because it disrupts our sense of control. And so for us, I described it as being like an earthquake. And the grief and the feelings of powerlessness are really common. Most of us, from what I read and hear from people, most of us struggle with fear, depression, and anxiety to some extent that maybe we never experienced before. So how do you know when you've reached equifinality or a new normal? Well, I think the details are different for everyone, of course, but there are these common elements and that's what I think binds us all together in a kind of solidarity. And, you know, one of them is like the grief that never completely goes away. And then there's this change of normal patterns of living. Then things like, you know, you used to go to work. Now you don't, like me. You used to be healthy and fit. Now you're not. Things keep changing. So being able to accept change and not hold on to the past can be hard, but being able to adapt is essential. You know, it's like evolution. We have to adapt to survive. It's the way of nature. We have to keep being open to change. So it's really some kind of normal rather than a new normal. Yeah, (laughs) I was being sarcastic the first time I said that, because when I thought about it, New has, you know, all these connotations of something being bright and shiny, like a new car, has that new car smell. And what we get from a transplant, you know, when you when you stop and think about it, what you get from a transplant isn't really anything like that. So it's more like this, I see it as like this old pickup truck with a load of junk in the back. I'd say something else, but I'll just say junk. <laughs> <laughs> I have a small farm, so I'd say a truck with a load of manure in the back and and the brakes and the steering don't work well. But here's the caveat. You now have this tank full of fresh gas. So if you're lucky enough to have other people in it with you, you know, to help you drive or get where you need to go, then you're in better shape. And I'm not trying to be negative or pessimistic about it. I'm just, you know, that's the realistic way that I see it. So Pete, that might be one of the best analogies ever. What an awesome visual and a great way to think about it. What you're saying is that getting to some kind of normal often requires a lot of work and a realistic expectation. That's exactly what I'm saying, because it doesn't just happen. And if you think it's going to just happen, then you're not thinking about it realistically. So what we all go through, it's really, really hard. For many of us, it's like going through many levels of hell. And other people like me have had to look death squarely in the face, sometimes more than once. So here's the thing. I was pretty sure that I could handle all the physical parts of transplant that were coming down the road. And then just, you know, I'll be able to pick up where I left off and get on with my life. But I had no idea at all all what the emotional or psychological parts were going to feel like. I know it's not as bad for some people as it's been for me. 
And I know it's been a lot worse for others, but I just had no idea how traumatic it was going to be or how my life was going to be turned upside down. So I hate to say it, but there's no new car waiting outside for you to ride in. And it's a real mess for a lot of us. Wow. Thank you, Pete. This is so honest and really going to help so many people adjust their expectation. But yeah, look at you now. Look at you here. You're living your life. You're on this farm. You're just living your best life. Let's talk more about it. Yeah. You know, it's hard, but it is the truth. And like some medicine, it can be hard to swallow. But I would rather have known what was ahead of us and taken it at the beginning than not have been forewarned. You know, you don't get a fresh start with a transplant. You have to rebuild your life on the rubble of the old one. You don't get a clean slate. It's like what you have to do after a natural disaster. And, you know, it's just like those beautiful little stem cells that we get. They have to build a new immune system for us on the pieces of our old ones. For sure. So let's pick your brain a little more. What should social workers, therapists, and transplant counselors, what would you say to them if you could right now for all the newbies out there? I'd say, look, be straightforward and honest with people. Give them the unvarnished truth. Tell them that they're in for the ride of their life. Tell them about the stages of grief they can expect. Tell them how important it is to protect the most important relationships. Talk to caregivers about the importance of their getting respite time and getting support from other family members and other caregivers. Let's elaborate on that. What else would you say to caregivers? To every caregiver out there, whether it's a spouse or a parent or a friend, I'd say make time to learn as much as you possibly can about the type of cancer your person has, what the transplant is going to be like for them before and after, and just try to find out everything you possibly can about what they're going to be dealing with. Don't assume that you know anything. Find support groups. Talk to other caregivers. Like I said, use every possible resource. Terrific. So, Pete, what would you say to other survivors? Let's wrap this up with your best tips. My primary contact with other survivors is on Facebook groups, and that's actually really, really good because most of us don't have the opportunity to have face-to-face meetings with other survivors. So that's turned out to be a good vehicle for a lot of people. So what I would say to my fellow survivors is dig deep for all the possible strength you can summon to do this because you're going to need it. I'd say find that interior happy place where you feel calm and peaceful and try to go there often in meditation. I'd say don't assume that you're safe now just because you've gotten a transplant. One of the things that I've hated over this last year is hearing about our fellow survivors who got COVID and died of it. And we have taken that to an extreme. Uh, I'd have to say that I have barely left home in 12 months. And part of the reason is that my wife is a virologist. So she's been following very, very closely and carefully. And 
quite frankly, we're all very susceptible, even if you're not taking immunosuppressants still. You don't have a fully functioning immune system. You have to be extremely cautious about it. You have to assume that the virus is everywhere and that you can easily get it. So you need to take extra precautions. Uh, we quarantine our mail and our packages. We go above and beyond the recommendations for normal people because we're not normal. I'd also say you're going to find out through this ordeal, this is a hard one, and it's happened to me, you're going to find out who your real friends and loved ones are. And it's not just the ones who love you with words and send cards, but it's those who are going to show their love in concrete ways. I'd say don't hesitate to get your affairs in order. Many people don't want to hear that, but it's just a reality. I say listen to your heart, and if it says that you're not ready for doing something, don't do it. I wish I had done that. When I got sick with the flu and pneumonia, I felt like I was being pressured, but I shouldn't have done it. Don't assume that your doctors know everything because they will tell you that they don't. They need your input and you have every right to give it. I'd say ask questions, lots of them. And if a counselor or therapist isn't a good fit for you, then try another and another and to find the right one. And then I'd say, finally, don't, you know, don't give up. Take care of yourself and take it one day at a time. Oh, Pete, this is fantastic stuff. Thank you for sharing your heart and your soul today with us. You're welcome, Peggy. And I would really like to thank the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link for the opportunity. And I uh, really want to congratulate all of my fellow survivors and encourage you to keep going. Thank you. This has been the Marrow Masters Podcast. Feel free to share this episode via text, email, or social media. For more, follow Marrow Masters in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to connect with the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, visit nbmtlink.org or follow the link in our show notes.